Well, it's my privilege uh, this morning to announce that summer has arrived. Summer has arrived. Are you sure? I am quite certain this is summer. <laughs> so, if this is not warm enough for you, this is summer. Summer has arrived. Uh, it's, it's actually very beautiful outside. Uh, the dandelions are coming to uh, <laughs> these wonderful flowers that arrive on our lawn in the spring. Anyway, this morning I want to um, ask you to think with me for just a moment uh, this thought. Suppose this morning that uh, there was credible evidence to suggest that there was buried treasure somewhere on your property. When I say buried treasure, I mean treasure. Um, many, many millions of dollars worth of precious metal buried on your property someplace. What would you do? Well, I said buried treasure. So what would you do? What would you begin to contemplate? It's not lying on the surface. It's buried. And so you know that you have to dig for it. So the next thing then you would say is, uh, the next question would be, where? Where? Where will I dig? Where will I dig? And it may be that you would dig many holes before you would actually find the buried treasure. Maybe the uh, evidence was misleading. But in any event, suppose that it were true and the treasure was buried. You would have to dig for it. But you'd have to dig for it in a certain place. And so you would say, I have to dig for it. You would say, where? And then someone would say, there. There. You dig there. And when you dig there, you would uncover this, uh, this very rich treasure. It may be that it would buried, be buried right underneath a piece of property that you had recently landscaped. It may be that you would have invested a lot of money in the landscaping, shrubs and trees and flowers of all kinds, and they would point to that which you had just recently constructed and say, there. And your heart would sink, and you'd say, oh, no, not there. But it would be worth it in the end, because when you found it, you would have found something of great value. Now, there's a place in Scripture. It's in First Peter chapter 4. And it is the first two verses, and I'm going to ask Sherry if she'll put that on the screen for us this morning. Because the scripture, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that's buried in a field. And the scriptures are basically like that. When you read the Bible, you will find that the great treasures that are there oftentimes are just not lying on the surface of the page. It's not just in the words on the surface of the page, but Within the words, uh, beneath the surface of the language, you'll find treasures. And this is true in First Peter chapter 4, the first two verses. And Peter writes these words, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I was raised, I was raised in a church that referred to itself and described itself as one of the holiness churches. And when we were younger, we had sermons preached often on a subject called entire sanctification. And they taught that it was possible for the believer 
to receive a work of grace subsequent to initial salvation, but part of salvation itself, and that this work of grace upon the heart of a believer was to bring about what they described as entire sanctification or holiness, a state of heart purity. And out of this state of heart purity then would flow the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I had never, uh, I do not recall this passage of Scripture being used in the context of entire sanctification. But as I read this uh, portion of Scripture recently, it is this part here that caused my alerts to arise. And basically, I said, you know, within this passage of Scripture, lying just below the surface as we dig into this passage of Scripture, we see this great truth. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I said, what does that mean? He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's contained within holy writ. Must therefore be true. It is offered not just by Peter, but by the Holy Spirit. It's saying that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so my first thought then was to come this morning and on subsequent mornings and to bring with me a large hammer. And everyone who wants to live a holy life, please come to the front and we will administer the heart with a large hammer. Whatever thumb or finger of your choosing. Because it says he who has suffered in the flesh will cease from sin. If that were true, then, he who has suffered physically in the flesh has ceased from sin, then the holiest people on the planet right now would be the hockey players who are still competing for the Stanley Cup because they are bruised and they are battered. Obviously, it does not mean those who suffer physically in their physical body, but those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin. The flesh means sense and reason, without the Holy Spirit. It means natural man. And when the natural man suffers in that sense and reason without the Holy Spirit, suffers there in such a way meaning that he has, he gives it up, he releases it, he uh, lets it go, he surrenders and submits his own will, his own ways, his own preferences, that this is the key to holiness and the ceasing from sin. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The key to holiness, the key to heart purity, which is very much a part of the doctrine of entire sanctification, is the decisions that we make in our life when we have a choice between our own personal preference and then we have a choice between that and God's will, a revelation of his of his will as received in his word. And suffering in that flesh means suffering in that sense where the carnal man, the natural man, um, surrenders and submits and says, not my will, but yours, Lord, be done in my life. But this is the pathway and the secret and the door to holiness and sinlessness or freedom from the power of sin is a great truth that we find just under the surface of the pages of Scripture. 
Then following in verse 2, it says, So as to live, cease from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh or in the natural body, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And another way of saying that is, the rest of my life after I have experienced that I need to surrender my own carnal and natural way of thinking and doing to God's word and God's will, then the rest of my life is dedicated to that purpose. So what I'd like to do then is to uh, provide a couple of examples, and Sherry will go to the next slide, from the uh, ministry of Jesus and his own words. Now, Jesus. Uh, Think about Jesus. um, Think about his birth. Think about who he is and and how he came into this world and that he was perfect man. Man and God. And yet he, being a perfect man, perfect person who had never sinned, says in John chapter 5 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now he has a perfect will. He has a perfect desire. He has a perfect initiative. And yet it is necessary in Jesus of Nazareth as a, as a human being, as a man. He finds it necessary to surrender and submit his own preferences and his own will. I find this just astonishing. Therefore, it would naturally follow, if he would find it necessary to do that, how much more should we find it necessary to do that? Again, he said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Continually and constantly, all throughout his life, he is relying upon the Spirit of God to prompt, to guide, to lead. There is a part of his own humanity, although pure and sinless, that he does not follow. I find that tremendous. It is a key to holiness. It is a key to power over sin. He says, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Then further in John chapter 8 and verse 28, we find these words where Jesus said, Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, meaning when you crucify me, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. Now I wonder this morning if we could um, just go to the next slide for a second, Sherry, and if you would join me and open your Bible with me. If you would open your Bible with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And I'm going to read at the beginning of verse number 1. And we want to revisit this morning the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and especially at the very beginning of his ministry, after having been baptized by John in the Jordan River. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when he had when they had ended, 
he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And if you will worship before me, simply is if you will follow my leading, if you will follow my prompting. And if we follow the prompting of the adversary, we will be worshiping before him. <coughs> and Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in, all their ha- and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended from, temp- from every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. After this temptation in the wilderness, where Jesus uh, basically he he resists and he rejects every appeal to the natural man, to the human person, launched by the adversary, he resists it, he rejects it, he spurns it, he turns it aside. The devil uses scripture. The devil uses every possible and every conceivable means to bring him to a place where he will act upon a suggestion of Satan. Acting upon a suggestion of Satan is the same as worshiping him. There's great spiritual peril in this. Then we follow along after when Jesus returns to Galilee. And the news of him went out through all the region in verse 14. Verse 15, imagine this, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. In other words, everyone is speaking well of him as he teaches in the synagogues. He, his words are with great power. And so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, where he was raised, where all the people knew of him. He came to his own hometown. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus suffered many things. You can think of all the examples of his suffering rejection, his being accused of being demon-possessed. All of the ways in which he suffered in his natural personality, although sinless and holy, he suffered in this. Peter writes that if we would suffer in the flesh in the sense of resisting in our own natural personality, natural way of thinking and looking at things, our own decision-making processes, suffer in the sense of resist them, turn them aside, reject them, and say the same as Jesus. I'm not called to walk in my own will, but the will of him who has called me. That this is the key to overcoming sin. You know, there are individuals who would testify to having been victimized by sin, and in some cases the same sin repeatedly over and over and over throughout their lives, never finding victory or power over that kind of temptation and sin. And the key, the simple key, as it is revealed, the treasure, hidden within the pages of God's Word, is that uh, the, the flesh, the natural part, must be denied. It must be, we, we must learn how to say no to it. Not my will, but thine be done. It's the doorway to great spiritual power. All these ways in which Jesus suffered. In verse 21, he read this after reading this. He, it says he closed the book and said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everybody spoke well of him. It says, so all bore witness to him, marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now look at the change that begins to occur within these people. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, all these people who had been previously speaking well of him, and then it finally dawned upon them that, well, you know, this is just Joseph's son, isn't it? This is, isn't this Joseph's son? When he spoke these words to them, it says they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. 
and then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And this was repeated on numerous occasions in the life and ministry of Jesus. This rejection from people who admired the miraculous but rejected his words to them. This rejection, of course, even reached to his own family. There was an occasion where his mother and brothers came to take him home from a certain place. So he was uh, rejected. He suffered in his flesh, in the sense he suffered in his natural humanity. But he constantly deferred and said, I do not, I am not motivated out of my own natural humanity. And you and I must not be motivated from that either. If we would see the simplicity and the the simple truth, that when we find ourselves in a place where our flesh, our natural humanity, natural way of thinking, is being challenged by God's word, God's ways, His holiness, that it's absolutely essential that we must resist, reject, deny the natural and say, I will not make my decision out of my own preference. I will not walk according to my own insight. I will not interpret according to my preconceived ideas. I long for your will, O Lord. I will walk in the light of your will as soon and as often as you give it to me, I will walk in it. I am not upon this earth to satisfy my own preferences or lusts or desires as a human being. We will soon find that the battle over sin, sinfulness, weaknesses of the flesh in all kinds of forms will uh, be conquered. And we will find ourselves walking in victory like never before in our lives. This is so simple. It's so simple, but it lies right in the pages of God's Word. It just needs the top layer to be taken off so that it can be seen. Its simplicity is so profound that we are in danger of walking by and not noticing it because all we're looking at is the surface. Can you go back in the... Just just walk back to the first slide again, Sherry if you would. Well, we, there we are. Let's read this one more time together in 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. And I've just introduced uh, an example of how Christ suffered in the flesh. Think about, again, who he was as a human being and how he was accused and how he suffered. Oh, the suffering that he endured. And I don't mean physical suffering necessarily on the cross, although that was profound suffering. I would suggest to you that the greatest suffering, the greater suffering that our Lord experienced during the cross was not just the physical suffering, but the suffering of soul. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. In other words, have the same intention, believer. Have the same intention. Say to yourself, there will be times when I will suffer in the flesh. Not physical suffering. But but I will suffer. 
there will be many times that I'll find myself reacting and responding and thinking in a certain way that will be a natural way of thinking and responding to me. It will be entirely wrong if I were to be led by that and manifest my life in this world according to that kind of leading. No, 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 I must give it up. If my Lord and Savior refused to be directed by his own perfect heart, perfect mind, perfect preferences, but laid them aside in favor of revelation from his Father, how much more do I need to do the same? Not only am I obligated to do the same, but the key to sinfulness or power over sin. Sin is a great enemy. So arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This part is not talking about Jesus, because he never sinned. This part is talking about the believer, you and me. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. See, the flesh, the natural sense and reason, natural way of thinking and looking at things, the natural man, the ways in which you think oftentimes that are saying, similar to maybe the way your parents thought about things, or the way your grandparents thought about things, or it's kind of within your DNA to have a certain preference and way of thinking. You and I are like that. I'm like that. You're like that. But if you and I walk in this world, making our decisions, evaluating things around us, according to that and that alone, and not denying that, resisting that, saying that's the natural man. The spiritual man is a gift that is given to me by the Holy Spirit. Christ has promised it to me. And just as he resisted his own natural personality, I must resist mine because it is the key to power over sin. Absolutely the key. Then it comes this. After this verse follows the second. So as to live the rest of the time, as many years as you have, as we have, to live the rest of our lives here in this world, no longer for the lusts of men, in other words, just following natural inclinations, natural desires, but for the will of God. I live for the will of God, that the will of God would be done, that the will of the Lord would be done. Now, it's easy to say that, thy will be done. It's so easy to say it. But every time we say thy will be done, we, you know what we're also saying? My will must not be done. My will must not be done. Thank you, Sherry. I want to I want to read something to you. It's a very simple message. It's a very simple thought today. But I can say to you that it is profound at the same time. I have a devotional I want to read. I'm going to close with this devotional. This is the morning devotional for May the 19th. Any idea who the devotional is written by? <laughs> How many devotionals do I bring you? There are some great devotionals. This just happens to be my personal preference. And why is that so? 
I can't tell you why it's so. I just know that there's a resonance. You know what I mean by a resonance? Used to do these experiments in high school, you know, they had a tuning fork over here. The other one over here would start to resonate with this one over here. You know. Spiritually, it's like that whenever I read uh, Charles Spurgeon's writing. I feel and sense that. He's not the only one, but he's one of those. Yeah, this uh, morning devotional for May the 19th, your birthday, this is the day, is it? Today? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong one. Chelsea, I'm sorry. This is the day today? Yeah. It's based on Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 7, which says, I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. I'm going to close with this and then Ruth will come and we'll sing our closing song. Listen to these words. Upstarts frequently usurp the highest places while the truly great pine in obscurity. This is a riddle in providence whose solution one day will one day gladden the hearts of the upright. But it is so common a fact that none of us should murmur if it should fall to our own lot. When our Lord was upon the earth, although he is the prince of the kings of the earth, yet he walked the footpath of weariness and service as the servant of servants. What wonder is it if his followers, who are princes of the blood, should also be looked down upon as inferior and contemptible persons. The world is upside down. Therefore, the first are last and the last first. See how the servile sons of Satan lord it in the earth. What a high horse they ride. How they lift up their horn on high. Haman in the court while Mordecai sits in the gate. David wanders on the mountains while Saul reigns in state. Elijah is complaining in the cave while Jezebel is boasting in the palace. Yet who would wish to take the place of the proud rebels? And who, on the other hand, might not envy the despised saints? When the wheel turns, those who are lowest rise and the highest sink. Patience, then, believer. Eternity will right the wrongs of time. Patience, then, believer, eternity will right the wrongs of time. And as you deal with patience in those times when you may be perceived in a way in which you are not, when you may suffer for certain things from which you should not suffer but you suffer for them because this world is upside down. And when you take a a stand for Christ and holiness and righteousness, regardless of your age, whether you're in the workplace or whether you're in the school, or when you suffer for that, when you are maybe ridiculed for that or laughed at for that, when you take a stand for Christ and His righteousness, 
in the public school today, you will be looked at as an oddity. Even more so, perhaps, as you graduate up higher through the different levels of education. Until you reach the university levels where the many of the professors will look at you as if you have sprung some kind of odd head. There's something wrong and deficient with you. You will suffer. Every human being, even in the workplace, will suffer because he or she does not think that a particular statement is funny when in fact it is not funny at all. And if you were to turn off your television set from time to time because of the programming that is satanic and that you are finding being broadcast to your entire home and family and the walls are actually receiving those sounds and recording them, not necessarily literally. And you would be thought about as being sort of prudish. Now the way we deal with that kind of thing is absolutely key, the way we deal with that. If we deal with that in a carnal, natural way, there's no promise, there's no promise given. But if we deal with that with patience, and if we deal with that as sometimes quietness, but if we deal with that from a strength that is given to us and from a mindset that is visited upon us and the one that we have not created ourselves, and if we wait for the answer to come to us that is an answer that is pleasing to the Lord and not the answer that rises up from our own personality, and the promise is absolutely clear, you will be set free from the power of sin because this is essential to the freedom from the power of sin is this very dynamic. And so then I close again with this statement. Patience. Patience then, believer. I was just saying, asking my wife just the other day this, and, and it's just so ironic. I had no thought of this, even until this morning. I was just saying to Pat one day, what would it be like at the judgment seat of the Lord? What would it be like when everything is known and when we're able to see things exactly as they are and when there are no secrets hid and no pretenses allowed anymore and when no one can devise a scheme to cover or justify and when everything is known exactly as it is and when we're not looking into a mirror that is dim and obscure but we're looking face to face and when we stand before him, we will see truth exactly as it is. Even the one who has to, who will stand condemned in that moment will see things as clearly as they are. But will have no defense. No defense. Why no defense? Because there is no defense. And they will have no defense because there will not be any opportunity in any climate to create a defense because everything will be seen precisely as it is. There will be no dark place to hide, nothing sinister to take advantage of. And oh, what will it look like then? What will it look like then? What will our decisions look like then? And my heart cries out within me, Oh Lord, may we make those decisions now that will stand that test then. It's not the way things look now. Take courage, heart. Take courage, heart. 
Speak, it's okay to speak to your own interior life sometimes. Take courage, heart. Because it is what, what will be at the last that will really matter and be of significance. I wonder what it will look like then. And so he says, and I, this is the fourth time I've read this verse. Patience then, believer, eternity will right the wrongs of time. You know there's a little more to this. I wasn't going to read it, but I will. Let us not fall into the error of letting our passions and carnal appetites ride in triumph while our nobler powers walk in the dust. Grace must reign as a prince and make the members of the body instruments of righteousness. The Holy Spirit loves order and he therefore sets our powers and faculties in due rank and place, giving the highest room to those spiritual faculties which link us with the great king. Let us not disturb the divine arrangement, but ask for grace that we may keep under our body and bring it into subjection. We were not new created to allow our passions to rule over us, but that we as kings may reign in Christ Jesus over the triple kingdom of spirit, soul, and body to the glory of God the Father. Amen.